So on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was still coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Thanks, David. I just want to say, wow, it's hot. It's good to see you all. And it is a happy thing to hear all the kids, <laughs> even when they're, they're whining a little bit. I'm just so grateful that God has given all people's church a bunch of kids. Aren't you guys? We are a blessed people. Um, Jesus has something to say about kids. We're going to hear something about them today. Um, it's always my joy. I love getting to preach, and I'm so grateful to be with you. Today is going to be the last sermon in Luke for a little while, as we're taking a break, and we'll jump into uh, a Life Together series, Life Together series, and we'll pick up back up uh, sometime early next year in Luke, but we've, we've chosen a particular um, spot to pause because in Luke's narrative there is this, this kind of shift in Jesus' ministry. We see this, this phrase uh, that in verse 51 where, where David left off that, that Jesus set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He set his face like flint, like a stone. He was focused and could not be shaken from the path to Jerusalem. What was that Jerusalem? Jerusalem was where Jesus was going to go to the cross. He was going to be handed over to men and die a death so that the way of the kingdom could be opened up for all who would believe in him. Furthermore, he was going to Jerusalem to die because he was paving the way of the kingdom. He was showing the disciples who would come after him what the path of the kingdom really looks like. He was showing us the way. Now, today's text is a really good one for me because it, it has recalibrated my heart in a lot of ways. We're going to look at misunderstandings of the disciples around the path of the kingdom and how to enter into it. And, and when, I, when I think about the cross, when I look at texts like this and I see that Jesus is so focused and directed towards this purpose of dying, all of a sudden I, I, I realize, oh yeah, <laughs> like that's, that's the way. That's the way even for me. And I'm going I'm to get into that a little bit more. Let me explain. Even, even in all the time that I've been a Christian, I somehow so easily divert and try to start to make my own path, my own path towards the kingdom. And, and what, what that kind of looks like is, is a life of self-sufficiency. I forget that, that my life is utterly dependent on God. It, it takes a form of a comfort-seeking life rather than a life of the cross. It takes a form of glory-seeking rather than seeking the glory of God. For example, I'm sad to say sometimes I'll show up to minister to people 
And what's on my mind is, is more what I'm doing in the evening than what's going on right in front of me. I've shown up barely whispering a prayer. I've shown up with my A game on, though, just, just so that I don't look bad. So you, you can see, like, I, I don't, that's not what I want. I want the kingdom. I've seen the kingdom. I've seen how, how God has given us the kingdom. I've seen this path of the cross, but somehow I slip into this bad way of thinking. Why do we go here? Does anyone else slip, in, slip into a different path? Does anyone else miss the path of the cross? Why do we go there? What, what is it? I know that you want the kingdom of God in your life. Amen. I know that you want to follow Jesus in his path, but somehow we miss it. We misunderstand God's purpose, it, purpose for our lives, and, and frankly, we end up living powerlessly. We end up lacking power. I think... Part of the reason that we do this is because we're so immersed in the world's ideas. We're just constantly bombarded by the world's idea of the kingdom of greatness, of glory, these sorts of things that, that all of a sudden I begin to, we begin to try to fit Christ into our little model, into our dream, into the American dream, right? But God's kingdom is not our kingdom. It looks so much different than the world's kingdom. And that's what we're going to get after today. We're going to see... In this sermon entitled, The Easily Misunderstood Path of the Kingdom, that the disciples had a number of misunderstandings and they were left powerless in those misunderstandings. But praise be to God, he corrects us. He recalibrates us to the truth. I just want to pray one more time. We've we've spent a lot of time praying today because we believe that we are totally dependent on God to move. Amen. Let's just pray one more time. Father, we ask that you would show us your glory. Show us the glory of Jesus. Show us, most specifically, the path of the cross and how that is the path of power. And Father, I pray that you bring conviction for the ways that we've deviated from your path. The path to glory is first the path of the cross, and I ask that we would have our eyes fixed on that, where we would re Uh, direct our hearts to follow you in the path of service. Thank you, Jesus. Speak through me now by your spirit and change our hearts. And Father, we believe that the enemy, this is a real spiritual war that we're in right now, even in this room. We pray that you would silence the enemy in his lies and deliver us from his schemes that would keep us from being mature people. Father, pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. So most recently in Luke, we've been looking at uh, these climax moments in Jesus' ministry. it's, It's Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's right before Jesus goes to the mountain, the disciples saying, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. We're gonna get to that photo in just a minute. You can just keep it up there. That's fine. But, but Jesus, Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, and his disciples there even hear, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Listen to him. So all of a sudden, Jesus' identity is fully exposed. His glory is exposed. His identity is, is exposed. But what we see, as we heard from Sam last week, is that Jesus is guarding the disciples' even from telling about who he is. He's guarding his identity from the crowds because they have some severe misunderstanding of him. They have some severe misunderstanding of him. So we're gonna look at those three, three, three different misunderstandings from, from all these chunks of text that, that David has just read for us. And, and we'll see three different misunderstandings. Misunderstanding one, they had self-sufficient ministries. Self-sufficient ministries. Misunderstanding two, they sought the crown without the cross. And then thirdly, they wanted to be served rather than serve. All right, we'll jump right in. Verse 37, they had self-sufficient ministries. Will you read along with me? I'm not going to have the text up on the screen, so please be looking at at your Bibles with me. 
Verse 37 says, On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, the spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. We just need to get our our head into this, this picture. Jesus comes down the hill, comes down the mount from where he was transfigured, and all of a sudden he's met yet again with a desperate crowd. And he's met first in this moment by a man who has a demonized son. A man who's suffering greatly over his child. And this, this scene that Luke paints for us is, is set up, I think, to contrast the fact that he just was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And this is, this is a painting by the great painter of the 16th century, Raphael. And he, he is trying to basically emphasize for us this, this incredible contrast where Jesus is first on the Mount of Transfiguration and then down below is the crowd of hurting, desperate people clinging to God for hope. And what, sh- what that should remind you of, I believe, is, is that our God, our God doesn't stay in His glory. He, doesn't, he didn't stay but he was aware of our suffering and he condescended into our world, the pain and the mess that our sin had caused and he enters in so that he can deliver us from the kingdom of darkness. He didn't stay in glory, church, but he came for us. He became a man. He took on human flesh so that we could be delivered. This is good news. This is good news. The man is told, we're told, has an only child. This, this man had experienced great suffering. For one, it was his only child, and that's not a small detail. In that day and age, your, your children were like your retirement. Without them, you would be potentially destitute and poor in your old age. Furthermore, this, this man had watched this demon, this spirit, an unclean spirit, basically destroy his child, try to destroy him. Mark's gospel gives us some more details of this situation, saying that not only was the child oppressed, but he, was, he would become mute. So he couldn't speak. Mark's gospel in chapter 9 says that the demon would throw the boy into fire. They would be around a fire, I imagine, for cooking or for, for warming themselves, and all of a sudden the boy would snap into some sort of episode and try to throw himself in the fire or into water. And Mark says that he's try- the demon was trying to kill him. It's a scary, scary scene. And, and the boy, the, the father says that this has been happening since he was a little boy, Suggesting that he would have been in the 8 to 12 range. He, he's, he's a young child. He probably had scars on his body from falling into the fire. And his father would have been just totally anxious about his son. This feels a little more uh, acute to me as I've just had my, my first son. I, I hold him and I think, oh, if this, if this child from the youngest age was oppressed by a demon, what, what would that be like? What would I do? I mean, this is a devastating moment for this man, and he's coming desperate to Jesus. When we look at scenes like this in our day, it is very, very easy to write it off as either something that's fantastical or something that just doesn't happen anymore. There's, there's a scientific or a medical explanation for these things that tries to, to reason away. We're, we're made out to be silly in our culture if we believe in angels and demons. But friends, in thinking this way, we've already fallen to one of Satan's greatest lies. He is after us. He wants to destroy us. He's an enemy of God and his creation. He's not on the same level. He is a created being, and yet he still has rule over this world because we submitted ourselves to him by sinning and following after him. 
And you need to know that, that he is, this is not a fairy tale. We are in a war right now. Even our children. I've been, thinking, I've been praying over my child this week. Lord, protect my boy. Protect my son from the evil one. We are living in a world that is ruled in part, he's on a leash, by the evil one. I've personally seen and been a part of the deliverance of young people from demonic influence. And it is not a pretty sight. It's not a joke. This is not something that we can explain away. There's no, there was no denying the spiritual realm for this father or even for the disciples at that matter. The man comes desperate. He comes desperate. In verse 40, he records these sad words. But the disciples could not. The disciples could not cast out the demons. How many times have you been at a point in your life where you just feel like you're at your end? You've done everything you can and you just feel like I, there's nothing else I can do. Sometimes even in our prayers, we're just like, Lord, I, I don't know what else I can do. I feel powerless. You just can't seem to fix it. And I think the disciples were, were brought to this moment yet again, even though just weeks prior they had actually gone into the streets preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing the sick, casting out demons. They were powerful in those moments because Jesus had given them authority but all of a sudden they feel their powerlessness yet again they're unable to perform and why well I believe it's because the disciples had a misunderstanding about the kingdom of God they had a misunderstanding about who Jesus was and what he came to do so for some reason or other God saw it best not to use them to deliver the boy in that moment. It seems that the disciples had slipped into some faithless thinking. If you don't mind, you can take that picture off there. I feel like we could stare at it all day. It's really good. Um, they, had, they had wandered into a faithless and self-sufficient ministry pattern. Look at Jesus' response in verse 41 to see where I'm getting that. Jesus answered, this is right after he says they couldn't heal the boy. Jesus answered, oh faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to bear with you? Bring me your son, bring your son here. I think Jesus is referring in this phrase, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, to not just the disciples, but I think it expands to the man who's bringing the boy. We see him confessing his, his lack of faith in, in Mark. I think it expands to the crowds who were present there, even, even those who would pretty soon be marveling. There seems to be a, a lack of faith. I think ultimately it's representing sinful humanity. It's representing humanity who is unable to see God's purposes and plans, who, who has no power because we lack faith in God. We're powerless against the demonic. I believe this is more applicable for our generation right now than we would like to admit. That we, we are powerless because we've misunderstood God. Jesus is clearly dissatisfied here in what he sees and that even his covenant people are wrought with demonic oppression and they're not able to, to cast out the demon because of their lack of faith. Now Mark's gospel adds some more detail to this, this story. When the disciples later come to him, you'll remember, they asked, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we do it? And Jesus has this kind of mysterious answer, but he, he, he replies and he says in Mark chapter 9, verse 29, he says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, while it's possible that this suggests that 
they didn't pray at all, that they were just, you know, coming, hey, be gone in the name of Jesus. You know, they, they, maybe they did that. I don't, I don't, maybe that's true, but I think it's more likely that they, they did pray, but there seems to be a lack of quality to their prayer. There's, there's something missing in the way that they pray. There's a faithlessness. I think perhaps there's a self-sufficiency. Maybe they, they got so used to that moment of power where they started, hey, you're, be healed. Be gone in the, in the name of Jesus. But all of a sudden, they've slipped into some way of thinking that lacks faith. There's, there's a lack of dependency on Jesus. They seem to be ignorant of, one, the power of the demonic, Two, of their utter dependency on Jesus for power to minister effectively to others. And three, I think they were ignorant of their power, of the power that they actually had in, through faith in Christ. In this spiritual world, Christian, we are powerless against Satan and his workers We are powerless to make any lasting kingdom impact without faith-filled prayer. Without faith-filled prayer, we are powerless over the darkness. But with faith-filled prayer, anything is possible. Friends, it's easy for us to forget. It's easy for us to for our prayers to become empty and faithless in this culture. And I think that in these moments, for the disciples, in moments where we come to our end, I think that God's purpose is to humble us, to bring us back to the place of intimacy with the Lord, back to the place where prayer is not just a short kind of mantra or ritual, but prayer is a Utter dependence. God, we need you. We're desperate for you. He's our lifeline. He is the true power. He is our power. So I want to ask you, are you living a life that's utterly dependent on Jesus? Or have you fallen into a life in ministry that's self-sufficient? If so, I just want to encourage you to pray the simple prayer that, that the Father prayed, I, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Despite the faithful, faithlessness of the disciples and of the people, Jesus says, bring me the boy. And Jesus invited them, uh, the boy up, and, and, and it says, we're told, that while the boy was coming, while they were coming with the child, the demon threw the boy to the ground. And convulsed him. But Jesus simply rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. And he gave him back to his father. What an awesome scene. If you feel powerless, you need to know that Jesus is not. There is no match for Christ's power, even right now in this world, in your life, in your situation, with your sin, with your addiction, whatever it may be, Jesus is the the same yesterday, today, forever. He is unmatched power. He can give you deliverance from sin and Satan, amen? There is no comparison here. The, The Uh, It's not even close. He says with one word, he rebukes the demon and it leaves. This is not the scene of Hollywood movies where (laughs) this clash, but Jesus simply says the word and it's done and he hands the boy back to the father bringing restoration. How sweet is that? Verse 43 says that all were astonished at the majesty of God. Oh, that's so good. They were astonished at the majesty of God, at the works, at the hands of Jesus Christ. What a majestic God we serve, amen? Amen, he's good, he's powerful. But even as Jesus, even as the people marveled at Jesus, 
Jesus will highlight another misunderstanding of the disciples. It seems that their marveling was not full of faith. There was a misunderstanding that was leading them down this path of faithless self-reliance rather than God-reliance. And I think that misunderstanding was that they sought the crown without the cross. This is our second misunderstanding. They sought the crown without the cross. Look at verse 43 with me. Please read along. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, and just, I think Jesus basically stops his disciples in their tracks. Everybody's marveling, but he says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So Jesus now a second time foretells of his death, but this time it's different. He, he seems to be more emphatic. First time he mentions, mentions the fact that he's going to rise from death afterwards. But this time he doesn't mention the resurrection and he says, listen up. Pay careful attention to what is about to happen. The Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the hands of men. Jesus is making the point crystal clear that whatever wishful thinking they had about his ministry and glory, whatever idea that they had that he was going to begin to conquer and take over and that he would gather more and more people, he's saying, no, no, no. The cross comes before the crown. The cross always comes before the crown. Jesus says the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. What's going on here? Jesus uses this title, and we've talked about it quite a bit in the Gospel of Luke. This title, Son of Man, is pointing back to Daniel chapter 7, this messianic figure who represented the holy people of God, who would be given a kingdom by God, the Ancient of Days. He was given this kingdom where every kingdom would, would be under him. He would rule and reign over all the kingdoms of the earth. But if you read the full chapter here, you'll actually see that that kingdom is handed to the Lord and received. It's received by the Son of Man in the midst of crazy trial and tribulation. There are kingdoms. There are, there are spiritual forces. There are evil men described as opposing him and his holy people. The kingdom would be received through suffering. This, this phrase, delivered into the hands of, the men, into the hands of men, is, is kind of interesting. It's who, who is delivering Jesus? Who is delivering Jesus into the hands of men? This, this phrase, delivered into, is actually found both in Daniel 7 and here in our passage. What's that about? Who's delivering Jesus over? Well, the disciples certainly don't understand. They're, they're, they're totally, even, they're even afraid to ask what Jesus is talking about. But what Jesus is communicating right here is that his death is not happenstance. It's not some, some, something that, 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 he can, uh, that he can stop or, or that, or, I mean, something that he wants his disciples to stop, something that, that he's, it's not some accident. But, what, but it was, in fact, being accomplished by God the Father. Jesus was not warning the disciples so they could fight for him. That was not the purpose here, but rather he was explaining the divine necessity for his death. He was explaining that he had to die. God, in fact, was the one about to deliver him over. It's all over scripture when you read the messianic promises. God would deliver him up for us all. For the iniquity of us all, God would deliver up the Son of God and he was going willingly. That's what Jesus is getting at. But the disciples do not understand. 
What they do not understand is that the kingdom of God could not be received apart from the cross. We are powerless without the cross. Amen? We're powerless. From the first time that the disciples heard of Jesus' identity, from the first time that they thought that this might be the Messiah, you, you, you know, they were, they were thrilled. They thought, hey, we're the first on the scene. Like, this is good news for us. Like, he's about to take out our enemies. He's about to restore Israel's power and glory. He's about to, he's about to rule over the nations, and we're on the front lines. But what they did not understand was that the kingdom of Satan and all those in alignment with it could not be toppled without first dealing with sin, with the ultimate problem of humanity, even their own sin. And church, this is what the cross is about. We, we sing about it, we talk about it all the time, but Jesus came to die for our sin that we might be delivered from Satan that we might be delivered from the wrath of God, that we might be given, handed the very righteousness of Jesus. This is why Jesus had to die. He was dealing with our ultimate problem. And friends, our, our ultimate problem is not our money problems. It's not our dating problems. It's not our political problems or any other problem you can think of right now. But our problem, man's biggest problem is sin. Satan has power over humans and peoples right now because all we like sheep have gone astray. We've willfully wandered into the paths of Satan. We've been deceived by him. We've denied the Lord. We've denied his purposes for our own way and have thus plunged ourselves headlong into death as we confessed earlier. The same place where Satan and his workers are headed. We misunderstand God and his kingdom when our attention and energy are on fixing our problems while neglecting the problem of sin. Yes, we should talk about all the problems of the world. We can talk police reform. We can talk about politics. We can talk about economics. We can talk about our own suffering right now. We should but not if we miss talking about our own sin, the heart behind it, the, the problem with humanity. What problem are you trying to overcome without the cross today, church? What problem are you trying to overcome without the cross? Even our sin. Sometimes we imagine that if we work hard enough, if we cut out enough bad stuff that somehow we'll be able to overcome. But no, the only solution. Church, the only solution to this ultimate problem is none other than what? What is it? Jesus in the cross. Jesus going to the cross. Amen, David. We're powerless without the cross. Jesus wanted this to sink into the disciples' ears because this reality would be at the very core of his kingdom. The only way to victory was first through the cross. Yes, Jesus was going was to rise, but it, he had to die first. But the disciples continue to miss it. Let's look at the last misunderstanding, verses 46 to 50. Misunderstanding three, they wanted to be served rather than serve. An argument, verse 46, an argument arose among them, read along with me, that as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. I'm going to keep reading in verse 49. John answered, Master, we... We saw someone casting demons. We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. 
Here the disciples prove their misunderstanding yet again. Their misunderstanding of the kingdom as they argue over who's the greatest. The greatest what? Well, if Jesus is a king, he's going to have, he's going to have his servants and, and, and they probably think we're going to be, one of us is going to be the right hand man. Who's it, who's it going to be? Who, who is the greatest? They're, they're excited to get that, that, that spot. And I think, I think they want that spot because typically the greatest have the most power and are thus the ones that get served the most. Likewise, they, they seem to get tripped up in this, this second narrative over the chain of command idea. And, and they, they start to oppose those who, who weren't with them. Why? Because I think, they were, they, I think the disciples thought they were out of rank. If they're not with us, if they're not a part of this posse, then they can't possibly be with Jesus. They cannot possibly be a part of his kingdom. They were misunderstanding. They were viewing the kingdom like every other earthly kingdom. I wish I had time to unpack this last section as thoroughly thoroughly as I'd like, but I want to point out that a lot of our division with others is due to our misunderstanding of God. In his purposes. A lot of our division, I think, is due to us missing God. We misunderstand. I believe the church in the world would look very different if we sought the Lord when there was a difference. If we sought the Lord first, Lord, help me to understand these people. Help me to understand them. Instead, we, we, we fight against them. We, we divide against them because they don't fit in our box. They don't fit the mold that we've created and all of a sudden we divide. I wish I could say more. Notice that Jesus' disciples, Jesus sees his disciples and he knows their hearts. He knows their hearts. He, He knows the reasoning of their hearts. And friends, he knows the reasoning of your hearts. I talked about this being a recalibration text for me today because as I'm reading through these things, and I hope as you're hearing these things, that that you're being pricked by the Lord Jesus. That there there might be some ways in which you've kind of strayed a little bit. You begin to diverge from the path of the kingdom that Jesus is blazing for us. And I just want to say that if that happens, if the Lord brings you to, to the end of yourself. If, whether that's through the Lord convicting you of sin or through someone coming to you and say, man, you're, you're out of line. Like, you're missing it. Friends, it's not time to run away, but it's, it's time to praise God. It's time to say, thank you, Lord, that you don't let me just wander. But he, he calls us back to the path. He, he recalibrates our hearts. He calls his disciples to follow him on the true path because he wants them with him. He wants us to be with him, and he doesn't want us to wander and stray into all kinds of nonsense. Don't be ashamed if your pride or your sin is exposed by God. What's the correction that the disciples got in this moment? I want to ask my wife to bring up our baby if he's anywhere close. Oh, he's gone. He's been a a lot of fun today. (laughs) Kate, <laughs> baby day, come here. Um, I want to just illustrate with <laughs> our child. If he, he's probably just fallen asleep, and I'm going to hear it from her later. Jesus took, thank you, babe. Oh, hi. Hi, baby. He might lose it. And Jesus took a child in his arms. This is my new baby. Say hi today. He's wide awake for you. Um, this, Jesus took a child in his arms, and I, I don't know if that was an infant or, or, or a little, little boy or a little girl, but Jesus makes an amazing illustration for his disciples, and he corrects their hearts. And he says, if, you, if anyone receives a child in my name, he receives me. What does Jesus mean by that? I think, I think what Jesus is saying is, 
Hi. When you, if you want to be in Jesus' kingdom, you're going to, ooh, you're going to live like Jesus. You're going you're gonna to take the same path that Jesus took, the one that condescends, the one that cares for the least, the one that cares for those that can't do anything for you. This little baby poops and cries and screams all day long. Hi, baby. I'm going to give you your passy. And Jesus, Jesus says that if you receive a child, you receive me. I don't think this is a works righteousness teaching. I think what Jesus is saying is you prove that you receive me by receiving the least. He goes on and he makes a similar case about receiving him. He says if you, if you want to say that you love God, you'll receive me. Anyone who receives me receives the one who sent me. Here's the thing. Jesus, in his path to the cross, it's not a glamorous path. Friends, in this world, we're going to face trials and tribulations because we follow Jesus. It's not a glamorous path. But if we say we love God, we will embrace Jesus and his cross. If we say we love Jesus, we will embrace the child. We will embrace the least. Jesus is correcting them by helping them to see that his kingdom is just so different than the way that they think. You prove your love for God by receiving Jesus. You prove your love for God by receiving the least. I don't really want to give him back. He's happy. Christian, we, we are called to embrace the life of service like Jesus. The disciples stumbled because they wanted the, the glory without the cross. Sometimes we stumble in life because we would prefer not to take the, the path that, that causes us to be really, really dependent on the Lord. We want to take the path that feels a little more comfortable, the path that, that strokes our ego a little more. We don't want to look shamed before the world. We don't want to look shamed when our, when our sin gets exposed, we don't want to look shamed to the world. We want to look great. We want to look like the world. But we have to embrace Jesus by embracing all of Jesus. We embrace his cross. Thank you, Kate. And thank you, Day. Thanks, baby. Jesus adds at the end of verse 48, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. He turns, they're thinking upside down, they're arguing about greatness, but he says, no, 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 no. The least among you is the one who's great. Just like Jesus just like Jesus. Jesus, in his greatness, in glory, in majesty, he could have stayed there, but, but no, he came low and he proved for us, he showed for us the way to power and glory. He showed for us the path to the kingdom. Verse, verse 48 is teaching us, it's showing us the way that everyone who comes after Jesus must go. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. Friends, anyone can cling to a path of power in this, you know, in this life. You can, you can work really, really hard to try to gain a powerful position, but, but here Jesus is showing us, you know, you wanna know what true power looks like? It looks like humbling yourself. It looks like caring for the least amongst you. True greatness in God's kingdom is, is to be the servant of all like Jesus displayed for us. So we misunderstand the kingdom of God when 
we begin to envy others in their high position, when we begin to reject the tough person, the annoying person, when we see ourselves as too great for particular tasks or conversations, right? But this is the main point that Jesus is trying to teach us. The path to glory, greatness, power is in no other way than the path of the cross. You have to go through the cross to get those things. And that's what what Jesus is showing us. Greatness is not an evil thing in itself. He shows us that. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you go low. You outdo one another in showing honor. Amen? So what does this mean for you today? I want to just bring this home in just a couple minutes here. First, friends, it shows us that, that Jesus is the only means of salvation. He came and he could have healed all day. He could have gone around casting out demons and delivering people from darkness. But no, he had to come and deal with the sin problem for you and me, for all humanity. We can never work hard enough to transform our hearts. We can never work hard enough to transform this world. There is no fight in the political realm or in any realm that will fix this world. We needed Jesus to come and die. Amen? There was no other way. So that anyone who believes in him, we're told, has their sins nailed to the cross, taking away Satan's power. Kids, I need to hear you to hear this. It's a little scary what I said earlier. If you don't want Satan to have any power over your life, the Bible teaches us all you have to do is call on the name of Jesus and you'll be saved. The Bible teaches us that if you call on Jesus, your sin will be nailed to the cross And then the devil doesn't have any ammo left. The ammo to the gun that Satan can come after you with is your sin. But if you've been forgiven of sin, then there's no more power for Satan, right? Isn't that awesome? Simply put your trust in Jesus and you you don't have to worry about Satan's power. Now I know that some days you will still face temptation. That is very real for every Christian. We get distracted, we get tempted, and, and led astray. But here's the thing. We have power in the name of Jesus to overcome. We have power because our sin has been nailed to the cross ultimately. He cannot destroy us. How, how great is that? Isn't that cool, kids? It's amazing. Christ rose from death. (laughs) He rose from death. Even though he would be handed over and delivered and die on the cross, friends, the good news is that he rose again, promising and proving that he would indeed raise all those who follow him through the path of the cross. This is the path of the kingdom. First is the cross and then glory. Second, it shows us, this text shows us that we ought to, we've got to repent of any thinking that aligns more with the kingdom of the world than the kingdom of God. If Jesus' path of victory was the path of the cross, why would we take any other way? We so easily think that we can take other ways. But what if the powerlessness that we feel today over our sin and our powerlessness in ministry and our powerlessness in life is because you tried to walk a self-sufficient path. We've, we've missed, misunderstood God, misunderstood our need for the cross. Church, power will come through faith-filled prayer. Power will come through faith-filled prayer. And here's, here's why I talk about prayer as, as the life of the cross. When you, when you pray, you're walking, you're, you're taking up a cross. Here, here's how. It ultimately leaves you humbled and at your end before God. It leaves you dependent before him. You get down on your knees or whatever you do, but you say, I can't in myself. I have no power in myself. Only you, Jesus. And when we pray, we die to ourself. We die to our self-sufficiency, and we believe that in doing so, God will breathe resurrection life into those prayers and help us to overcome and help our friends and those we're ministering to overcome. Power will come through faith-filled prayer. Man, I wish that our, our nation would pray for our political leaders before we would, we would fight and divide. That's what we've been instructed to do, amen? Pray for our leaders. We want power. We want our, our, we want our agenda to be moved forward. Man, I hope that it's in line with Christ's agenda, but pray. 
pray. Greatness and glory will come through serving the least. I've already made this point, so I won't belabor it, but friends, who are you serving? Church, who are you serving? Are you welcoming the, the weak? Are you welcoming the child? We have an opportunity to serve the kids. We're relaunching the, youth, the, the kids' ministry. If, you, if you're not a, you know, if you're not, you don't have kids, but, but you want to serve, sign up. Take, take care of the least. It's, an, it's a non-glorious, it's not a glorious position, but, but do it. Are you serving your annoying neighbor? Are you ser- serving the people that bother you at church? Greatness and glory will come through serving the least. My burden today is that each of us would again embrace the path of the cross, that each of us would see that that is the path of the kingdom and that it is ultimately the path of true joy. Amen. Jesus blazed that path for us. And, and if we're going to be faithful in this hard, hard time of, of the world, we have got to look to Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. And guess what? He's now seated at the right hand of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we worship you for you are not a God who has just left us in our sin and suffering, but you've come, and there, there's pain right now in this room, and there's, there's demonic oppression perhaps, there's addiction, there's, there's besetting sins, and we need deliverance, Lord. So we depend on you, we set our gaze on you, we ask, Lord, as we pray right now, we look to you and pray that you would deliver us. And Father, we ask that for every single one of us that we would grow in our maturity, that we would look more and more like Jesus every single day, that, that as we look for the path of, as we look for our way to the kingdom, as we fight to meet Jesus face to face, as we put our faith in him, that we would never try to abandon the way that you've paved for us, and that is the way of the cross. You call us to take up our cross and follow you, Jesus, so we will, by your grace. Give us strength in your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. We're-